afternoon. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, cell dust, toucan beaks, and ocean burping. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor James Cacalios, who will talk about the physics of superheroes. Plus, we'll find out what wool is made out of. So stay tuned for all that, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Frank and I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty awesome. It's a very special day here, right? It, it is indeed a special day, and uh, it's not that day that George Bush is finally out of office, but <laughs> <laughs> it, is a, it is indeed a fine day. Yes, five years. Five years. Can you believe it? Well, isn't that longer than a lot of marriages, actually? <laughs> kind of get up to that seven-year mark, and all of a sudden it starts to break down. But yeah, we got to be careful there. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they say most 50% of all marriages end in divorce. So <laughs> 50% of all science shows should, I guess, also <laughs> similarly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll be one of the lucky few. <laughs> We're competing with insanity, you know. <laughs> and so far, insanity seems to be winning, but... <laughs> <laughs> How about suicide? I haven't uh, contemplated that one. <laughs> oh, okay. By the way, so happy anniversary on the fifth year. <laughs> happy anniversary to you, too, uh, Charles. Uh, is this actually supposed to be a special thing you're supposed to get on the fifth year anniversary? Yeah, I think that, that wish went by when that fifth anniversary mark went, right? Uh, so, there we go. I guess we're done. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, speaking of suicide, in case you haven't contemplated it, it turns out a lot of cells in nature do. Right. It's uh, called apoptosis, as I recall. Yeah, and sometimes if it doesn't do that, it becomes a tumor. Yes. <laughs> not a good thing. But the molecular underpinnings of apoptosis is still not well understood, and a lot of the actual molecular mechanisms for it are still trying to be unraveled. But recently, a team at MIT led by Michael Yaffe has found some of the chemical signals that are necessary or that are prevalent in these type of cell transformations. Right. The one that he discovered was there's signaling proteins, uh, interleukin-1-alpha, and the transforming growth factor, which cooperate with the so-called tumor necrosis factor. Mm, okay. One of the main ones involved with the apoptosis. So these are external signaling molecules though, right? I believe that they're actually intracellular signaling. Oh, so he was able to determine this from a mathematical model and originally this was a 660 dimension model. But once you simplify it to two axes, a so-called uh, stress apoptosis axis and a survival axis, then it becomes much similar to uh, disentangle these uh, molecular circuits. So this is using complete expression profile of these uh, cells right. in order to pull out the particular genes that are involved in yeah. apoptosis. One then we may even prevent suicides in people then, huh? <laughs> I guess it would probably require a little bit more than just a few genes there here and there. <laughs> Hot cup of tea and an understanding ear. <laughs> so if anyone's interested, it's in a recent edition of Science. All right, Frank, so is resistance futile? Resistance causes heat from friction, right? <laughs> it is also, I guess, the source of voltage drops across a circuit. Ah. <laughs> so in the case of fighting diseases, you certainly don't want your microorganisms to become resistant. No, you certainly wouldn't. AIDS has actually been very good at making it's, your resistance weak, right? At least it seems to keep evolving so that the drugs that are used no longer become effective. Right. So it turns out that the growing bird flu may be encountering some resistance to Tamiflu. Oh, Tamiflu. It's that special drug 
drug that made from Chinese star anise. Right. It's perhaps one of the best known drugs for actually just combating all kinds of the influenza uh-huh. uh, virus. But it turns out that a new strain H5N1 of the avian influenza virus has shown strong resistance to Tamiflu. Okay, and this is the one that supposedly could become dangerous once it becomes human to human. Well, I guess there's a number of different strains, and this, of course, is one of them that could become very dangerous. But current epidemiologists are not all that concerned because H5N1 does not appear to be the most prevalent of the various strains. But obviously, if it's the most resistant and everyone starts using Tamiflu, then of course Uh it would be selected for. Right. So they're just warning that keep an eye out, don't uh, overuse Mm. the drug, obviously, and, and such. Fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. What's your favorite bird? I guess the penguin's nice. It waddles and it doesn't fly. And it stays warm. What about the toucan? I guess so. It's very colorful and it's on a box of cereal, so you gotta, you gotta like that. <laughs> oh, the toucan cereal, right? Yeah. Fruit Loops, right? <laughs> yeah. So have you ever wondered why, even though their beak is so huge, they still seem to be able to stand up straight and not become top heavy? <laughs> uh, I always assumed it was made out of styrofoam, so. Okay, you're actually close. It's actually made of keratin, a I, different kind of polymer, I guess. Right. But keratin it depends how dense it is, right? The, right. So the trick for them to have such strong but lightweight beaks is it uses overlapping tiles of keratin okay. which is the sulfurous containing proteins, mm-hmm. sulfide bonds that help to keep it intact. It's the same uh, thing that's in our fingernails and our hair, right? Right. And if you look closely at the interior of a beak it actually looks like a foam with these network of these type of fibers. Oh, so it's basically sort of a spongy network of all these keratins. Right. So scientists are interested because the beak is actually quite strong and can absorb high energy impacts mm. and so they're using this as an inspiration to design new automotive panels as well as light aircraft. And fake beaks. <laughs> well, I'm always looking for novel biological enhancements. So. <laughs> I've seen some really bizarre ones on Rivoli's Believe It or Not. <laughs> I guess I don't believe it. <laughs> okay. I thought some lady wanted to look like a Klingon or something like that. That I can believe. <laughs> Me, I want to look like James T. Kirk's belly. <laughs> How about Jabba the Hutt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I go off my diet, that shouldn't be much of a problem. <laughs> so anyways, this was reported in a recent edition of Acta Materials. All right, and finally, some more news from the world of global warming. It's that warm, fuzzy feeling, huh? Uh, You know, I love the warm, fuzzy feeling, especially in the middle of winter. (laughs) So now there's more information, I guess, coming from the deep ocean currents. What mysteries lie under the currents? (laughs) Apparently, it's sort of an indicator for what types of processes occur when the global environment heats up to high levels. And so a group of researchers led by Flavia Nunez and Richard Norris at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UCSD are looking at these deep ocean currents to see what it told them about previous epoch in Earth history when all the global environment had heated up. And it turns out there was sort of a reversal in the current flow of this deep ocean current, okay. which basically wound up creating massive amounts of methane to bubble up into the atmosphere, again, feeding the global warming cycle. Okay. And of course, warming the continent so that once the ocean currents shift, there's sort of this runaway heating of Earth's surface. So is this part of the thermohaline effect? Because there's, well, that, it like there's tons of methane trapped under the oceans. Mm-hmm. And if we release it too suddenly, that could... Exactly. I mean, so, the warming process. Right, right. And so this is what they suggest had, had happened at that point. And they did this by looking at a number of uh, microorganism fossil shells to mm-hmm. ascertain this. And uh, it looked like these current backward flow of ocean currents lasted for almost 100,000 years. Wow. So they're just suggesting that any kinds of changes that we make to the environment could have long-lasting effects. So don't make the oceans burp, huh? <laughs> at least if you do, give it some antacid. <laughs> so this is very fascinating work. It was reported in a recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. 
Well, coming up next, Professor Jim Kakalios will join us to discuss the physics of superheroes. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, they can travel faster than a speeding bullet, levitate objects with their minds, and walk through walls. They are superheroes. And for the most part, their incredible feats remain confined to the pages of comic books and divorced from physical reality. But what if these superheroes actually existed? Could they perform their miraculous feats given our laws of physics? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor James Kikalios. Professor Kikalios is a professor in the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Minnesota, where he's taught since 1988. His class, Everything I Needed to Know About Physics, I Learned from Reading Comic Books, is a popular freshman seminar. His unique take on physics is presented in his new book, The Physics of Superheroes, and he joins us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss some of these fascinating topics. Uh, Professor Kikalios, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program. I mean, you did write a very fascinating book, The Physics of Superheroes. Thank you. <laughs> Curious, I mean, this is actually probably something a lot of fans of comics love to think about, and certainly some physicists probably do as well, but why did you decide to write the book? Uh, it started from over the years teaching introductory physics to undergraduates, and we have an arsenal of examples in climb planes and shooting projectiles off a cliff that are chosen because they illustrate only one particular physics principle at a time. But the students tend to see these as very divorced from their everyday lives. Mm. The standard complaint is always, when am I ever going to use this in my real life? (laughs) And interestingly enough, whenever I use superheroes to illustrate physics principles, Students never wonder when they're going to use this in their real lives. Apparently, they all have plans after graduation that involve spandex (laughs) patrolling the city. And there are many times in comic books where once you grant the impossibility of the superpowers to begin with, what the characters are doing turns out to be physically realistic Hmm. applications of the powers. For example, there's a character, a supervillain in Spider-Man called Electro, who has electric powers, and he can shoot electric rays. And occasionally he is shown climbing up the sides of buildings or adhering to cars using magnetic attraction that he generates. He doesn't have magnetic powers, he has electric powers, but we know that that electric currents create magnetic fields. And so Electro, applying Ampere's law, is (laughs) able to, say, climb the side of a building by adhering to the iron beams. Hmm. In, its, in its structure. And so teaching this cl- freshman seminar, as you say, everything I needed to know about science I learned from reading comic books, we grant the characters a one-time miracle exemption from the <laughs> laws of nature because hopefully it's not a huge shock to the students or the readers of my book that superpowers are actually impossible. <laughs> but once you grant that, then, we ask, if you could run at super speed, 
could you run across the ocean or catch bullets in midair? If you were super strong, could you leap a tall building in a single bound? Mm -hmm. And how strong would you have to be? Mm -hmm. And what would that imply about your home planet's gravity? And could we build a planet with that much gravity and keep it from exploding? (laughs) (laughs) Things like that. And so it's just, it's a a very sneaky book. It's a very sneaky class because it's getting you to eat your spinach, but by hiding it in a superhero ice cream sundae. <laughs> well, surely a lot more fun than dropping balls off of tall buildings. Yes. <laughs> so I guess you did allude to Superman talk about leaping tall buildings. Uh, was it actually possible to leap a tall building, and how strong would you have to be? Well, in the early days of Superman comics, uh-huh. he couldn't fly, but hmm. simply jump great distances, and this was ascribed to the fact that his home planet's gravity was much stronger than Earth. Mm-hmm. So just as our muscles and skeleton are adopted to Earth's gravity, so when we go to the moon, we're able to jump over moon buildings and lift moon cars over our heads that amaze the moon people. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, <laughs> Superman's <laughs> able to do the same thing here on Earth. And so we ask, we take an estimate of tall buildings, say 30 or 40 stories, and we ask, what must your initial velocity be when you lift off the ground mm-hmm. in order for you to rise and climb up, say, an eighth of a mile? And this is a well-posed physics question. And mm-hmm. it turns out that you have to be going nearly 140 miles per hour, which is why most of us can't do it. And mm-hmm. I'm lucky to leap a trash can <laughs> in a single bound. And so then you ask, how is Superman able to achieve such a high initial velocity? And he does it by a process that physicists technically call jumping. He presses down on the ground with his feet, and due to Newton's third law, Mm -hmm. the ground presses back on him because Mm -hmm. forces come in pairs. Mm -hmm. And then we ask, well, how much does the force have to be? And we use Newton's second law of motion. And when you plug in all the numbers, you find that it has to be nearly 6,000 pounds of force. Then you say, well, say that's twice his normal standing weight on Krypton. Then that implies that he would weigh 3,000 pounds on Krypton. Mm -hmm. But we know he weighs 220 on Earth. So just by knowing that he can leap a tall building in a single bound, we can calculate the minimum excess gravity Krypton must have. Mm. You know, 13.8 will round it up to 15 or so, 15 Mm -hmm. times Earth's gravity. And then the fun thing is, you, physics, every answer leads to another question. Right. And so you say, well, how would I build a planet with that much gravity? And it turns out you either make it 15 times bigger than Earth or 15 times denser mm-hmm. than Earth. And there you run into trouble. You can't make it 15 times bigger unless you're willing to make it a gas giant, because mm. big planets tend to be gas giants because 98% of the universe by mass mm. is hydrogen or helium. You can't make it 15 times denser because normal matter can't be made that dense. You would change all of chemistry if you did that. So you you ask, is this it? Is the story of Superman sent from the doomed planet Krypton coming to Earth with powers and abilities far (laughs) beyond that of mortal men totally bogus? (laughs) Not necessarily. Because while no normal matter could be 15 times denser than Earth, there is exotic matter, such as neutron star matter. Mm which has a density of 100 trillion grams per cubic centimeter. And all you would need is a very small core of neutron star matter in a planet the size of Earth, and the acceleration due to gravity would be 15 times larger than it is now. And then you realize why Krypton exploded. (laughs) Because such an intense gravity well at the center of the planet would make a stable distribution of mass very tenuous at best. And at some point, plate tectonics would set off a series of earthquakes that would alert an astute scientist that now's a good time to put your kid in a rocket ship (laughs) 
send them off to some other planet, preferably one without a neutron star core. So these two teenagers who created Superman in 1938, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, at the time either had an understanding of relativistic astrophysics far beyond that of most scientists of the day, or they were really good guessers. It's amazing life could even evolve on such a planet. Yes, well, there's a whole separate question, that's right. But, and again, we're not, in the book, the book covers everything from Isaac Newton to the transistor, mm -hmm. but there's not an inclined plane or pulley in sight. Hmm. All the examples come from superhero comic books, and as much as possible, those cases where they get their physics right. And you're mentioning life evolving is an excellent point, because the book isn't trying to say, this is how Superman's powers work, or doing things like that, because... Superman's been published for over 60 years, and so I'd have to say, well, which version of Superman? The 1940s version, the 60s, 80s, the issue that came out last Wednesday? So <laughs> what we do is I, I'm really just cherry-picking and taking, ah, here's an example from this comic book that is an accurate illustration of Faraday's Law. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or here is an accurate representation of the second law of thermodynamics. Right. <laughs> and, and so the book covers it covers um, mechanics, it covers heat and energy and electricity and magnetism, all the way up through modern physics, all mm. the way up through quantum tunneling with Kitty Pride of the X-Men, able to walk through walls, mm -hmm. to solid-state physics, where we talk about Iron Man and his transistorized mm. armor. I mean, it's interesting because comics also have an interplay with what goes on in science. It also reflects what the developments are in science of the current day. Yes. You know, certainly we don't look to comic books for our research ideas <laughs> for no other reason than the National Science Foundation tends to frown on grant proposals that have too many citations to Marvel Comics or DC Comics. But it is certainly true that the same spirit animates both scientific research and the best comic book stories. This notion of what if, mm -hmm. that you have, you have to know the rules of the game, you have to know the laws of nature, but then you're trying to push things or come up with a creative mm -hmm. new way of view viewing the situation. You have a character who can run at super speed, you have a villain who has an ice gun who can ice up the surface, removing friction and thus rendering the hero's power inert. And how does the hero stop the hero in this case is the Flash, <laughs> stop <laughs> Captain Cold, who, by the way, is not a real captain. And how does he do it in a, in a new way? How does he do it in... Typically, the heroes in these comic books would have to outthink the villains. You know, the villains had some sort of, of superpower that would render the hero, you know, helpless, because otherwise there's no benefit, there's no point to the story. If you've got Superman versus a common crook, that's a rather short story. <laughs> So the question is, you've got some sort of stalemate here, and the hero has to come up with some sort of creative way of solving the problem. Mm -hmm. And so it, it always emphasized that, you know, outthinking and being clever, knowing lots of things, knowing lots of bits of information, nuggets of information, was a good thing. And so it is a positive, definitely a positive reinforcement. Certainly you look at things that were suggested in comic books that have come to pass. It's not clear to me that the scientists actually were motivated by the comic books. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know of any examples of that. But it is striking that I see, um, in fact, I just this summer was talking to Marv Wolfman, who said that back 10 years before it became a real product, he predicted Photoshop <laughs> in one of his stories. There are melting rays that have been around since the 60s. Now we call them microwave ovens. Mm -hmm. uh, there are um, notions of how time travel must always involve transport to a parallel 
Earth or a parallel universe. Mm -hmm. uh, this is going back to 1961 issues of Superman comics. These are notions that are currently being used by string theorists, trying to develop theory of quantum gravity. So in some cases, these things are predicted and have come to pass, though mm -hmm. I'm still personally disappointed about the absence of flying cars here <laughs> in the year 2000. Well, I, I think I recall Isaac Asimov had once said that science fiction and comics were some sort of the hidden muse of scientists. I think certainly, again, by sparking this notion of knowing the laws of nature and then letting the creativity run mm -hmm. free, I certainly wouldn't be surprised. Of course, they're really cool. Right. <laughs> well, I guess we're running slightly out of time, but I'm curious, who is your favorite superhero? There are two that, from when I was a kid, that I'm still very fond of. I both, I like The Flash. Mm -hmm. I always like this notion of super speed and mm -hmm. certainly with all that I have to do nowadays I really wish I could move that fast <laughs> uh, and I also always like the Fantastic Four I, I just like the, the family dynamics and I like the fact that their leader Reed Richards uh, his real contribution was that he was super intelligent in addition to having his powers and so those are really cool so my favorite superhero was the Green Lantern, and since you yes. are now the knowledge expert, who would win, the Green Lantern versus the Fantastic Four? Well, if eventually, I think that uh, the Green Lantern, I think, would make a good show of it, but uh, even regardless of which era Green Lantern we're talking about, the 1940s Green Lantern and 1960s Green Lantern, if, if Reed Richards figures out that he, all he needs is a yellow baseball bat, <laughs> <laughs> I, think that, I think it's all over. All right, well, it's not good news then for him. Then. <laughs> all right, well, Professor Kikalis, I, I do want to thank you very much for uh, oh, Brickett Grox and of course discussing your book uh, The Physics of Superheroes oh it's been a pleasure thank you very much alright and you were just listening to Professor Jim Kakalios discussing the physics of superheroes you're listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show well coming up next it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world famous question of the week so stay tuned You're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, we're back from the break, and our guest professor, Jim Kakalios, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Super Weaknesses. So, for the following five people, if they were a superhero, 
what would be their super weakness? Okay. Professor Kikali, so are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? I am ready. Okay, here we go. Grokatron 5000, person number one, what is the super weakness of Bill Gates? Ooh, Macintosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's sort of attacking him, but he, he seems impervious to that one for now. <laughs> yeah, so far, right. <laughs> number two, Oprah Winfrey. Used to be David Letterman. <laughs> But she seems to have conquered that fear. I, I think this is someone who may not have a super, in, you know, in which case, look for her to conquer the universe sometime <laughs> in 2006. I, I think she's well on her way, it seems. I am very close to. All she's got to do is give me a car, and she has my vote. <laughs> okay, number three, the uh, super physicist himself, Albert Einstein. Oh, his super weakness turned out to be an attempt to quantize gravity. His, his super weakness eventually turned out to be physics. was something <laughs> that he totally mastered, and because he was such a genius, he only tackled the hardest problem hmm. and eventually met one that was his Waterloo. Uh, but that and probably um, barbers. Barbers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, number four, soccer great David Beckham. David Beckham's weakness probably would be a lack of atmosphere that would make him unable to curve his soccer ball <laughs> <laughs> through uh, very bizarre interactions with the ball fluid interface. <laughs> so we'll have to shoot him to outer space or something. Right. Okay. All right, and finally, of course, uh, number five, the super weakness of the President of the United States, George Bush. Oh, dear. I was afraid. <laughs> uh, sunlight? <laughs> Oh, you know what? Clearing brush <laughs> seems to be, or mountain bikes. He seems to take a fair number of spills uh, whenever he, so he, something that he, he regularly grapples with, but they always seem to be getting the upper hand of him. That and pretzels. <laughs> pretzels. Uh, I guess we do know how to take him down then now. So. <laughs> All right, well, uh, Professor Kikalius, I do want to thank you very much for sticking around and playing our game. Oh, thank you. And, of course, discussing your book, Physics it's of Superheroes. Superhero. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Very, bye-bye. <clears throat> yeah, uh, I reckon so. This is Jack Twist, gay cowboy. Well, here I am with all the sheep and uh, shearing all this wool, wondering what it's made out of. Yep, turns out it's keratin. Mighty cool. And Lord Voldemort was this week's question of the week, making the most powerful potion in the world, and I need... The eye of a toad, hair of a bear, and a gallbladder. But what does it do? If you know what a gallbladder does, or think you know what a gallbladder does, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you won't be so vile. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music.